Hey guys, welcome to Music Therapy. Today, we're going to dive deeper into music's mental health crisis. We have a special guest, Jen Pelly, staff writer for Pitchfork. That's coming up on today's Music Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a mental health existential podcast for musicians and music fans. Visit musictherapypodcast.com for previous episodes and upcoming events. We have an upcoming event that's Wednesday, February 8th at Cafe Mustache. We will be doing a live taping of the show featuring Chicago band Waltzer. We call these our group sessions. I interview a full band. We have a special guest, Leslie Tanner, a little comedy interview with the full band. And then of course the band gives a live performance. They are a lot of fun. And that is Wednesday, February 8th at Cafe Mustache, 8 p.m. I hope to see you there. Here is a quote. Artists are suffering from mental health struggles vastly disproportionate from the general public even in light of the mounting mental health crisis around the world. That quote is from a December 2022 Pitchfork article called Confronting Music's Mental Health Crisis. It was written by Jen Pelly, and she spent a year researching this article. The article was shared widely. A lot of people sent it to me. It's a great article that clearly resonated with a lot of musicians. I wanted to dig into it, so I reached out to Jen Pelly. Here is our conversation regarding music's mental health crisis. Okay, I'm here today with Jen Pally. Jen, thank you so much for being with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So I, uh, this article was passed around a lot. Several friends sent it to me. I think it really made waves um, in the music community. And I, I just wanted to talk about it a little bit more. I wonder if you could first uh, just kind of give us a synopsis of the article as you understand it. Yeah, totally. I, I was really um, glad to see that it seemed to really be reaching people. Um, well, so yeah, for some context, like um, I've uh, been a music journalist for about 15 years and I started working at Pitchfork in 2011. Um, I'm currently a freelancer. So I think I, the nature of being my work as a freelancer, I can relate to what musicians um, are up against a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was around the time that I went freelance in 2018 that I started to think about a lot of the issues that I'm investigating in the story. And I've I've also always had a lot of friends who are musicians. Um, And I think because of that, I've had kind of a front row seat to the realities of touring. I've been on tour with some of my friends' bands. I've been on tour as an artist myself, which is maybe less relevant given the nature of that. But but I, I just know, I feel like 
from that, I've been witness to um, a lot of the the stuff that I, I'm talking about in the piece. And as a music journalist, um, at a certain point, I just started to feel like the world that I write about and that I live inside of and that enriches my life is clearly not working for so many people. And I did feel like a certain level of responsibility at a certain point to try to take a close look at why that is and why so many musicians at so many different levels seem to be struggling with particularly mental health in relation to touring um, and how touring works and how the streaming economy factors into that and all these kind of like interrelated systems that are not working for people. I, yeah, I guess I just at a certain point felt um, a responsibility to take a close look at that as someone who like lives a life with music. And the more the more time I spent talking to people, talking to artists, talking to therapists, talking to people who are working at the intersection of music and mental health, the those systemic issues um, became clearer to me in terms of how the economy of touring, the streaming economy, the fact that we live in uh, in the United States, there are so many barriers to healthcare for so many people, particularly freelancers. Not to mention all of the, the like the, the general unsustainability of touring during the pandemic that we're living mm-hmm. through. Yeah, um, just all of these factors. Um, also, and not to mention like um, corporate consolidation in the music industry that has made it so that there is less of less infrastructure for people who are operating in the middle of music, um, not people who are like the, the 1% of pop stars or people who play music as more of a hobby, but people who are kind of operating in the middle. So I, I wanted to try to just take as a closer look at all of this as I could. And I also, as I was have been thinking about all of this over the years, around 2019, I started to notice like various initiatives cropping up, whether it was organization like Backline, which is a nonprofit that was founded in 2019 to connect musicians and crew members with mental health resources or learning about the um, touring and mental health manual, which is a book that's coming out in March, um, put together by a therapist in the UK named Tamsin Embleton or learning about hearing hearing artists kind of call for record labels to be providing mental health resources and taking a look at that. I just, I was trying to piece together this this story that seemed to be playing out in front of me, I guess. And yeah, there's, there's so much, it's like a 7,000 word piece. So there's more to it beyond that too. I started to, I also was trying to give some serious attention to how artists who I know of who I'm a fan of um, in other countries where they're like, I, I just wanted to kind of do a side-by-side comparison of how artists in other countries are getting by in 2022 and talking to people in Norway and Australia and Canada about the various like government subsidies and healthcare resources that are more available to them, how that impacts the reality of being a working musician also ended up being a pretty significant piece of the story. The article itself is not overwhelming when you read it but what what it brings up feels very overwhelming you're touching on like you said many arms of and it, it seems very centered mostly in the economics of the healthcare 
available to the you know American citizens and and the music industry. And so it's it's hard to know kind of where to begin, which I think is probably what everybody's feeling a little bit. Like, how do you start chipping away at this? How do you start working on this issue? Mm-hmm. What what takeaways, whether it's related to that comment or otherwise, what takeaways did you have after researching and writing the article? I, I think what you're saying about the kind of like unwieldy, overwhelming nature of the conversation um, is something that was like extremely apparent, like top of mind to me as I was working on the story, in part because it's kind of an endless story. Like you, at a certain point, I had to just be like, this is the research I've done and, and try to present it in a way that felt useful. But I think that that is a big part of why the conversation about mental health and music often kind of gets swept under the rug or, I mean, it's coming to light more now, but I think that's why for so many years, even before the pandemic, it's something that would kind of, it was just kind of lingering there and people, people knew that this stuff wasn't really working out, but the um, kind of pace of being a touring musician, I feel like doesn't really allow for that sort of reflection all the time. Mm-hmm. Something that was really interesting to me, um, there, you know, there, I tried to, in the piece, I really tried to, on the one hand, highlight some um, organizations and like people who are trying to do more to provide like immediate resources to musicians who might therapy or might need other mental health resources. Um, and on the other hand, look at it from more of a systemic perspective, like what are changes to the musician, the music industry and changes to society that people can advocate and organize towards in order to make music a more sustainable place um, for people who are trying to do it as a career. And I guess some of the initiatives that I was exploring in the piece that to me feel really practical and worth in like taking a closer look at maybe talking about now are, I thought it was really interesting that Jenny Haval from Norway, she's one of my favorite artists ever. Um, her music is so important to me and has like profoundly impacted my life. Um, so hearing her say in the piece that she was unsure if she would be making the music that she makes if she was American, because of the support she has received living in Norway, whether it's from universal health care or government subsidies, like she's been able to get um, state funding for tours that she's done. And on top of that, the, she's in like a number of artists unions. That was I think, a really interesting part of it because she, what she was telling me is that she is in three different unions and the unions that she's in are really like ways of accessing information and I think that there, like more of that is needed in the United States, just kind of like organizing and solidarity and conversation happening among musicians. Because from doing this piece, I learned that there are resources that are available to people, uh, pro bono therapy initiatives and things like that, but people don't know about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that getting information to people, having having like channels and information is really important. And is part of the reason why I'm inspired by seeing something like um, UMA, the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, cropping up over the past few years. Like that, um, the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers is a organization that was started in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, by a bunch of musicians who were just trying to like create solidarity and find ways of organizing to increase the quality of life for musicians. <laughs> to better, to better the quality of life for musicians. So 
I, I would say if this story struck a nerve with you and you're a musician, maybe look into seeing what Yuma is um, up to currently. And another um, another initiative that I talk about in the piece and which has re- like people may have heard of because it's received like a fair amount of press prior to this piece is the um, Royal Mountain Records like mental health initiative. Mm-hmm. Royal Mountain is a label in um, Canada that for every artist they sign per album cycle, they give a $1,500 like mental health and wellness stipend. Things like that, I think, like, you know, when I interviewed the founder of Royal Mountain, he said, like, I know this is a drop in the bucket in terms of like fixing the systemic problem of the mental health crisis in music, but it's what I can offer. I I would love to see more record labels starting projects like that, where they, they build that into their deals for artists. Find it kind of hard to believe that most labels don't have that. I mean, I know that some labels are tiny DIY independent labels probably don't have that, but there are some, I I was on a panel on Sunday and I said this and um, maybe people would disagree with me, but being in the music world, I see people at record labels, like go out to bars and put their credit card down and buy drinks for everyone. Like it's no big deal. And it's like, so it's like, there's money there. So why can't some of that money be allocated towards mental health resources rather than like $1,500 on alcohol in a night Yeah. or everyone at the label? Yeah, whatever. I just, that to, to me, it seems like Oh, opening up budgets to stuff like that at record labels seems like it would be a step in the right direction too. But beyond that, I, I also think that, um, like I, I interviewed Santa Gold for this piece and she spoke really powerfully to how, like the necessity of kind of fixing the music industry, particularly like the horrible streaming deals that exist for artists that have created a context where they have to, like people feel, like they are expected to tour harder and more often than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. The way people think about touring has changed. Like in the nineties, you didn't go on tour in order to make your living. You went on tour in order to promote your CD that you were selling. Right. And so the idea that touring is how you make the vast majority of your money is kind of like a fairly new phenomenon. This is like one of the conversations I've been having with people a lot since my piece came out is just like, how the nature of the the way in the music industry, like the purpose or the, you know, the, um, the, the way that people think about touring has changed. Yes. So I, I think, yeah, I think that the, the importance of like kind of thinking about how corrupt the streaming economy is, is also a part of this. And I should point out too that uh, my twin sister, Liz Pelly is also a music journalist and she writes like, she's written some incredibly like important um, pieces about the streaming economy. She's working on a book about it. Like I'm certain that I would not have written this article that I wrote if not for the fact that Liz is my sister and she is always thinking about this kind of stuff. Like this is the sustainability of the music industry. Um, her, she's really rubbed off on me and made me think about stuff harder. So shout out to sister. <laughs> um, there's. I want to touch back on. I'm going to follow that, but I want to touch back on something. And you were talking one of the quotes that I actually pulled out was from the person who runs the the Canadian label who's providing some stipends for mental health services. And I highlighted the, the quote was part really hit me 
where he said, I've had artists tell me I was on the edge and this helped save my life. It doesn't seem like good business. You're giving money away. But in the long run, it actually is good business because bands can be healthier and make great art. And I, I think that's true philosophically. I think that's true personally when I've struggled with mental health stuff versus when I've been in a much better place. My music has definitely been better and all the executive functioning skills that go along with making music and putting it out there is much, much better. And so it's an investment of sorts in our arts community to put some money towards that, which benefits all of us. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that people like across the arts can relate to that. Like as a writer, I can relate to that. Like attending therapy has helped me immensely in like being able to function as a freelance writer, like no doubt. I, uh, I think it's interesting too. Um, there's a the quote that followed that in the piece by Tamsin, where um, yeah, she was just saying your capacity for expressions widens when you begin to like heal, and mm-hmm. I think that yeah, both of what the things that they both said I think are really important. And yeah, it just it seems kind of like given the nature of what being a touring music musician is given the reality of it i think that labels or not not necessarily only labels but but like there should be this infrastructure should exist i think in the in in the in the music worlds to support people Mm -hmm. i think you know like i remember i'm not sure if this made it into the piece but when i was speaking to adrian langer from big thief about this she was just like i think if people felt like their basic needs were being met shows would get better like music would get better totally and that yeah. you know that extends from having mental health resources available but also just things like um people being paid enough for shows when they're first starting out um because she, she was saying that in the context of like artists who are really just starting out who i do feel like i say in the piece like I, I think that people who are at the beginning of their careers kind of tend to get overlooked in these conversations. Like there are certain resources that are available to people who can prove that they have made their like the majority of money that they're living off of music for a number of years and things like that. What Adrian Linker was talking about was like making sure that people are paid fairly when they play a show, if they're opening a show, uh, the idea of like food being provided, hot meals being provided, things like that. Yeah, so many times I'll play a show and I'm 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 not a beginning artist, but I'm I'm definitely anyway. So a lot of times you go and you play a show and it's you get half off of whatever food that they provide and I feel like that could be a good place to start. Give give the bands a meal. Yeah, I was talking to someone at this at this conference that I um spoke at on Sunday. I was talking to someone who said like in Europe the idea that an artist would show up to play a show and would not be provided with a hot meal, it's just unthinkable. It's like not providing a bathroom or something. It's like, it's just kind of something that is just built into the infrastructure of the performing arts. Mm-hmm. Like I know that not every venue can afford that, but I think it's interesting to take a look at like, why is that? Why can't every venue afford that? And so something I was talking a lot with a friend about over the weekend is like, I, I think we should take a, like maybe a closer look at like why venues feel like they can't afford these things and like how that would change if say, for example, a venue in New York City or DC or Chicago Chicago could apply for some sort of like arts grant to um, like, like if, if there was just funding that opened up to the arts and cities more to help subsidize some of this stuff. I think that could also be interesting. And all of these, like these things seem like they're impossible, but I do think that like 
artists organizing is kind of like the first step to exploring like what is possible in terms of um, trying to find more funding for the arts to reduce stress and like make things feel more possible. any um any interesting bits that for one reason or the other you weren't able to include in the article or anything that you know for whatever reason didn't make the cut but was also something that stood out to you oh man there's so much stuff that's on the cutting room floor of the piece because I, I I interviewed so many people but let's see I'm just I'm not sure if anything particular like comes to mind exactly but maybe one thing that was interesting that I think like that I left out is people increasingly, I think people understand that touring isn't like this traveling party where people are like, um, have beat the system and they just get to live outside of capitalism and like have this um, kind of existence where they travel around and play music and um, it's like summer camp or something like that's- The hashtag van life. Yeah, it's like, that is just so far from the reality. The reality is Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's really hard for like 90% of the day. And then for 10% of the day, it's not maybe that people would even disagree with that um, ratio. But I was talking to one artist for the piece and I was like, is there any example of like kind of an incident on tour or an anecdote that you remember that you feel like would really hammer home to people? Like the challenges that come with being a touring artist And she said, like, I can't just tell you one example because any one individual example would be like insufficient. It's just like if it was one example, it's like it just it's like over and over and over again, (laughs) Um, which I yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not there's other stuff that was left out of the piece, too. But um, but that's one that I thought that was interesting, like because sometimes I feel like being a freelancer or being being an artist like the the challenges like yeah if you if you isolate them and you if you talk about them individually it can maybe not paint the fullest picture of what it feels like when you feel like you're drowning while you're trying to do the thing that you do and actually I felt like Rachel Brown from um, there's this band this person Rachel Brown who I spoke to from a band called Water from Your Eyes who are like a fairly young band who I really like. Um, They just signed to Matador Records, which um, I think they announced today. And they were saying um, in the piece, like people really glamorize the idea of being a musician and forget that it's a lot of work. When you're stressed about surviving, you can't think about anything else. Right. And I think it is like when you're in survival mode, that's, that's it. You're just in survival mode. And there's so much about being an artist today, particularly a touring artist that I think kind of just puts you into you in perpetual survival mode 
because the economics of it are so bad. Yeah, it makes me think of the hierarchy of needs that we have. Um, and then going back to when you're when your needs are provided for, you're going to be more creative at those higher levels and be able to invest that time into what you're making instead of just uh, surviving. Totally. And and granted, like no one becomes a musician or a writer because they think it's going to be easy. Like that's not ever no no one thinks that you you get you get into a creative life fully expecting that it's going to be hard in many ways but i think that like that shouldn't um like the things that are hard about it should be like the creative process i don't think the things that are hard about it should be being in survival mode constantly in the arts in writing music whatever it is like it it's always going to be hard but it shouldn't be as hard as it is like it shouldn't be impossible mm-hmm. I really liked what Kevin Erickson said um, from the Future of Music Coalition. When I interviewed him, he said, people are always going to make art about the hardship they're going through. We don't have to make it harder. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of some summarizes a lot of it. I just feel like the world we, at least in the United States, like the context that we live in just makes it so much harder to be an artist than it has to be. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, w- I wanted to ask you... Um about another aspect of this that you touch on in the article. And this is something that, you know, with the podcast I've done over a hundred episodes now, most of them are really in-depth interviews with musicians. And one thing that comes up almost every single time is social media Mm -hmm. and the impact that social media has on mental health. I think the internet is part of the system that has changed the landscape of music and economics and all of that in massive ways that were just now trying to keep up with, but I guess I'm wondering if, I guess I'm wondering your thoughts on the role that social media plays on musicians' mental health. Totally. I think it's a really good question. And from the very beginning of like, when I started to really work on this piece in earnest, like at the beginning of last year, it was immediately apparent to me from the conversations I was having that social media is like a definite component of the mental health crisis in the music industry and like maybe i'm not sure maybe it's like worth mentioning what some of the statistics are that i um cited at the beginning of my piece i think that in music there is a need for a lot more research um on mental health but one of the study that i cited at the beginning of the piece is like this 2019 survey that surveyed over 1100 people who work in music in touring and found like greatly elevated rates of clinical depression and stress and um, levels of suicidality that are five times the average rate of the U.S. population, which I, I feel like those that those statistics really like hammer home the severity of like this conversation. Mm-hmm. But when I, yeah, when I started to um, really talk to people about it, it became immediately clear to me that the kind of lack of boundaries that social media it creates is a huge part of it. And I, you know, it, it's like, it's interesting because I remember like eight years ago thinking like, because I, I have so many friends who are touring musicians. And over the years, I remember thinking like, wow, I, I don't think I could ever do that. I, I don't feel like I'm not built for it. Like, I don't think I could just be traveling constantly because of all the things that I know I need to be able to do in order to not be depressed. Mm hmm. Really more over the past few years, social media has been a part of that too, where I'm like, I'm, 
I consider myself a pretty private person, like at least the past decade of my life. Mm-hmm. And I can't really imagine what it would feel like to be have so much pressure to commodify yourself and put it on the internet and be public yeah. um, about so many parts of your life. Like to me, that's that's obviously not healthy. And I just don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think that should be the norm for how people are promoting their work. It just, I don't know. I, I, it does that doesn't seem to me either. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think the other thing that comes up um, when I'm having these conversations is just the comparison that comes from social media. Musicians comparing themselves to other musicians or they see a story of their show and how full the room looks or how many likes somebody's getting or check marks or all that kind of stuff really gives rise to just a lot of depression or self-esteem issues. Um, and some of that is just so quantified. It's it's hard not to. How could you not compare your listen counts on Spotify to somebody else's listen counts? Yeah, it, it's it seems like um, artists should be protected from those sorts of things, I think, like not ex- <laughs> participate in them. Like, I think it kind of goes back to like what we were saying about the piece, part of the piece where um, Menno from Royal Mountain was saying, um, you know, it doesn't seem like good business, but people can be healthier and make, make great heart. It actually is better for business. And I sort of feel that may- maybe in some way that that logic could be applied to social media where um, just, obviously for some people, some people like to be like, really online mm-hmm. but some people like to drink too and some people you know it's like some people are sober some people can drink some people can be on social media and not have it like ravage their self-esteem and some people can't and I think it's just kind of like artists tend to be incredibly sensitive and so to me it's like it, it makes sense that for someone to protect the part of themselves that fuels their art they would create a boundary with social media not like pour themselves into it every day or, or be glued to it i like the idea that a label would just create like some paywall for a musician <laughs> so they can't peek at their stats and just like keep them keep yeah. them sane someone else can have the password <laughs> exactly we have to protect you from yourself let's see i i really appreciate your time today and um i guess i wanted to ask you know like we were saying at the beginning this is a really overwhelming problem and sometimes with overwhelming problems i think there's a sense of okay, we know this is a problem, but I don't know what to do about it. And I I guess I was wanting to leave the listeners of this episode with maybe a couple of actions they could take, whether they're a musician or they want to support musicians that feel concrete, that that maybe you've identified through your article and research. Yeah, totally. It's interesting because I'm a music journalist. I mostly write about songs and lyrics and like (laughs) um, interview people about their work. Um, So doing this this piece, I I learned a lot. And I'm really, if people have feedback on the story, they have other ideas for things that people can do. I um, would encourage, I would love to hear from people with feedback on the story. Like I said at the beginning, one of those inspiring things I came across during the piece is like I knew about UMA, the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, but I, I do think that they are doing really important work in general, in terms of trying to make music a more sustainable place, they were doing a campaign, a ju- like a Justice Spotify like campaign, like where the, they were campaigning for a penny per stream and protesting outside of Spotify's offices and stuff. And 
So to me, that is an interesting response. I think that in in my mind, there is there it seems like there could be room at, at an organization like Yuma for like there used to be like a healthcare working group. I'm not sure if there is anymore. I think that um, it might be on pause, but the idea of there being a, a musicians union with a healthcare working group, having musicians organizing around health and mental health and taking up these issues as musicians issues could be interesting, but, but also I don't want to put too much of like the burden onto artists because I think that this is like a systemic thing also. Well, one thing I would say is to check out this organization called Backline, mm-hmm. which I learned about while working on the piece, which they're trying to be like a mental health hub for music where if you are struggling and you're trying to get connected with affordable healthcare, you can fill out a form on their, their website and they attempts to connect you with therapy that you can afford. I also think people should ask, like, like something that came up in this panel that I was on on Sunday is that people don't often ask for things because they don't think that they will get them. Like, uh-huh. maybe if you think that your label should be paying for your health insurance or paying for your therapy, like, maybe ask them for that. Um, and see what happens. Or if you think your booking agency should be paying for it, maybe ask them and see what happens. I have heard of that happening for people since since this piece coming out. I've, I've heard musicians mention that they've asked and that need has been met by um, their team, basically. I can't imagine it would hurt to ask. Yeah. Aside from that, I, yeah, I feel like to, to me, those are, those are hopefully two yeah. actions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as a gatekeeper of indie music and a maker and a breaker of careers in the indie music world, what do you think Pitchfork's role is in terms of the musician mental health crisis? I think that's a really good question. And it's something that I've been thinking about since the article came out too. I like, you mentioned like Pitchfork as like a maker and a breaker of careers, like something that's really interesting to me that I've been thinking about in terms of this story is like, like I was talking earlier about the, the the infrastructure of the middle of music kind of being lost due to corporate consolidation over like the past mm-hmm. couple of decades. When I think of that, my mind immediately goes to um, the loss of alt-weekly newspapers in cities mm-hmm. across the country. It used to be that there was there were probably multiple alt-weeklies in every city and if you were a band, maybe Pitchfork didn't like you, but maybe you'd be on the cover of the Alt Weekly. And that would be like a big deal. That would be like a way that people found out about your music. And I think the loss of that is really, really devastating. It's not even like, I, I guess I don't see it as like a Pitchfork problem as much as I see it as like a media problem where um, the loss of infrastructure of Music journalism is a part of this too. Like mm. the, um, there used to be more music magazines. There used to be alt weekly newspapers. And so just because this one publication didn't like you, that didn't necessarily mean that you weren't right. championed in, in other places. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a problem too. And not, not to mention this piece that I wrote, I, I would guess that part of the reason why this story hasn't been told in the way that I told it before is because of the state of music journalism in 2023, where they're just like music is underfunded. Music journalism is also um, underfunded. And to, to me anyway, I think there should be more local music media. There should be more grants for music journalism in addition to grants for musicians um, in order to fund stories that are needed, that are doing like 
uh, public service and local music publications that are doing a service to the cities that they might exist in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if I can if I exactly answered the question you were asking, but but I do see media as being a, a part of the story. I would love to see more just psychoeducation out there. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's something that is very public servicey and could have a lot of reach for people just the power of learning about more mental health issues and what you can do, I think would be great. Another another thing to work on. But Jen, man, thank you so much for your time today. Your article was really impactful and I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it a little bit more. I appreciate that so, so much. Thanks for um, such thoughtful questions. Okay, I want to thank Jen. Thank you so much for your time, Jen, for digging a little deeper into that with us. I hope you guys are doing well. Come on out to Cafe Mustache next Wednesday. Um, Subscribe to the podcast. And if you are a subscriber, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is really helpful to us and helps us reach other musicians who are also thinking about these same things. We'll be back next week with a very special Valentine's Day episode. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. Peace and love till I see you again. Music